Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Let's uh, jump into week five. We're in week five of our Sermon on the Mount sermon series. Reminder that we are, we're on this hillside around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus is teaching. He's leaning into the kingdom of God, all things kingdom of God. And he's, he's inviting us into this new way, the Jesus way of living. And it's, it's a total radical shift from the way of the world. And this is important. Uh, today we're going to be talking about salt and, and hope, but we're also going to be talking about cynicism. We live in a cynical world. Uh, we distrust others. There is a, a cynicism is really just a distrust in the sincerity of others uh, or a belief that everyone is acting out of their self-interest. And we are a extremely cynical society. It's clear every election cycle, we just had one. No one trusts the government. Did you know that no one trusts the government? We have a, a slide here. This is the year-over-year uh, -year trust in the government Pretty soon it'll be under zero, and I don't know what happens at that point, but we, we don't trust the government. 15% of people trust the government to do what's right. That's down from highs in the 50s. Um, maybe you're a little cynical about my cynical point. Maybe you say, hey, we're not as cynical as you think. That's ironic. But I'll, I'll grant you the point. Maybe we're not as cynical as you think, because look at the chart that says everything's getting better. How about that? Poverty is going down. Education is going up. Literacy is up. The world is more democratized than ever. Vaccinations up, mortality down. Hey, things are getting better. Things are improving. Technology means that, that food comes more easily, drinkable water, hygiene, convenience, entertainment, standards of living. I don't think we're as cynical as you think we are. That's fine. You can think that. When's the last time you went and got fast food? That makes me cynical. I see advertisements on the left. I get the real thing on the right. Listen, I'm going to just, I don't do this very often because it ruins all the camera people, but look, this is the realest thing you're going to see today, right there. <laughs> if you've ever been to Burger King hoping it's going to look good and it's flame grilled and you walk out and there is a smashed brown and, I mean, it's awful. Go drive through after this and send me a picture. I can't wait. Then you'll be cynical. We'll all be on the same page. Worst of all, uh, worse than that, is we don't trust each other. So uh, as measuring for honesty and ethical standards, here's what we think about everyone else on earth. And basically what this chart is going to say is that uh, short of nurses, doctors, pharmacists, and teachers, we like people who keep us alive and take care of our teenagers. That's about it. Everybody below that has uh, radically lower approval ratings and trust measures than ever before. All the way to the bottom where you see telemarketers and car salespeople right around Congress. I didn't make the chart. I'm just showing you what you think. I feel this walking around town. Maybe you didn't know this. Pastors are not exempt. <laughs> Trust in clergy just in the last 20 years has gone from near 70% to the low 30s. People are suspicious of their motives. At best, the larger culture looks at a pastor as a gesture to ignore. At worst, a provocateur to silence. Cynicism 
is growing, and it shouldn't surprise us that people are walking away from faith. We have a growing cynicism of all things, so why wouldn't faith be part of that? We're increasingly um, distrusting of God. What can I trust if everything is falling apart around me? People are asking this question, whether consciously or subconsciously, they're going, what would I trust if everything is falling apart, if everything I read is about war, if everything I hear is about problems, do I really want to believe that there's some good God with his hand on the world that's, that's allowing this? How can that be? I can't trust that. You feel it in your own house. Home maintenance never ends. The city will fix the street. The next week you drive on that street, there's already a pothole. Some of us, some of us, some of you are young and spry and your bodies still work. But some of us in this room are feeling the breaking down of our bodies even. Even internally, we go, there's something breaking in this world. Things are not getting better. Jesus is not surprised by this. Jesus on that hillside looks at his friends, looks at his followers, looks at the disciples, looks at those who gather, and he sees a world in decay and dismay. And here's what he says in Matthew 5, 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. 32 English words. I would, I would point out the last 25 words of this are a warning. So we're going to get to that at the end. But but 32 words, the first seven are really, you are the salt of the earth. It's a power-packed phrase that we can often go, yeah, okay, I get it, nice, fine. I've heard it's a little of this or heard it's a little of that. That's, that's sweet, but can we move on to the more important things? Salt, as you may have heard before, in a time before refrigeration was used as a preservative. Salted meats could be kept. What would decay and spoil is now able to be preserved. You can... Um, harvest an animal, and then months later continue to be nourished by it. Once we were uh, driving to New York City, my family, we, were, we liked going to New York City, but we did a driving trip one time. It was a strange idea. Probably wouldn't do it again. But we were driving into Brooklyn late one night. Everybody's hungry. Um, we're staying in Brooklyn that time, and, and the kids are like, we're dying, we're hungry, what do we do? And I said, you're the salt of the earth. And they didn't know what that meant. So I said, salted and cured meats will, will serve you. So we went down the street and we found this place called David's Brisket House, hole in the wall. It literally has like four tables, wood panel walls. There's nothing in it except this giant, um, it looks like uh, a giant ice chest, except it's silver and enormous and has like chains on it. And you go in and you go, I would just like a corned beef sandwich and pastrami on rye. And they open up this giant ice chest and these huge, beautiful salted meats come out. And then this man takes a sharp knife and like my mouth is watering thinking about it. And my children, I do this because I know lunch is coming. Uh, my children... They would tell you to this day the best sandwich they've ever had in their life. And it was salted cured meats. It's, it's meats that had been preserved by salt and then seasoned with salt because salt is both a preservative that makes things um, last, but it's also a seasoning that makes things delicious. It's miraculous. These tiny little crystals harvested from the earth can arrest decay and enhance your experience. So Jesus looks at his followers and he says, you are the salt of the earth. In a decaying world where everything is breaking down, where everything is falling apart, where you sense the whole thing is being spoiled, in a decaying world, you're the preservative. You hold the line. In a cultural vulgarity, you 
you present virtue. In a selfish society, you offer selfless sacrifice. You enhance this life with love. In a world of despair, more than that, more than just preserving, in a world of despair, you offer hope. How can we offer hope in such a cynical place? Everything is breaking down. Your body is falling apart. Did you know the sun is burning out? It's literally, we're all, it's just, it's over. More cynical than ever, more divided than ever. Don't look at your Facebook. Don't read the news. Hope? So I think what Jesus is prescribing here is something I would like to, I'd like to tell you. I live by this phrase. Um, I call myself a cynical optimist, which doesn't really seem to fit. You can't be an optimist and a cynic, but Jesus thinks you can. So what is a cynic? Somebody who thinks everything is ruined, everything's broken, nothing works, just forget it all, burn it down. What is an optimist? An optimist is somebody who is just walking, skipping through the, the life, just going, everything's great, everything's perfect, I don't see that, I don't see this, everything's fine. And I think if you fuse the two, you get what Jesus is aiming for. We want to become cynical optimists. See, because optimists and idealists will always be let down. If you choose not to see what's wrong with the world and you want to live in an idealized world, eventually the world's going to knock on your door and ruin that pretty quick. We've all been there. You were like, well, I think this is going to work out pretty well, and then it doesn't. That's where you become cynical. Then nothing is going to work because all the things I've counted on don't happen. So Jesus enters the picture, and this is where idealists become realists, and he fuses the two together, and it can only work because Jesus would say this. The world around you is more desperately hopeless than you can ever imagine. That's a cynic. And your future is more gloriously hopeful than even the greatest optimist might dream. There's the optimism. So you have to admit that the world is more broken than we ever imagined, but also the glory awaiting and the future is brighter than we could ever have dreamed. And both things can be true. It allows us to look at the world with a sense of realism and go, I can look around and see what's happening. I can see what's happening in Gaza. And I can say, something is terribly broken about our society. And I can look at what the Bible promises for our future and go, but something is going to be made right. I can look at the brokenness that happened in the area of Israel some 2,000 years ago when they took Jesus and they put nails and they hung him on a cross. And you go, uh, the cynic would go, see, this is how it always ends. They took the, what, the, the best one and they crucified him. And three days later, what happens? The optimist says, but look, he's resurrected. And so we have to look at the world through both the cross and the resurrection. We have to look through the cynicism and the optimism, fuse the two together, and only then are we able to become the salt of the earth. Yes, it's breaking down. And the kingdom of God is breaking in. So there's healing available for the hopeless. There's, there's grace available for those who feel that there is no hope for them in this world because of what they've done or what they think or whatever habit they have. The lost can be found, the broken made whole. Ultimately, what Jesus would say is the dead become alive. Everyone will die. Cynicism. Resurrection is coming. Optimism. The Christian can embrace the dark reality of the present because he or she sees the brilliant hope of the future. But you can't offer somebody hope in the future if you don't acknowledge the darkness of the present. The problem with optimism is if you don't acknowledge the, the pain that somebody is in at this moment, then you're the cockeyed optimist and they don't want to listen. So you have to get in the ashes with somebody long enough to go, but there is a path out. The other is true as well. You can't just be cynical and sit in the ashes and go, everything's ashes, ashes, ashes. You have to say, there is a path. There's a path. There's a plan. We can do this. As salt, you can't ignore brokenness. Jesus says, you exist to arrest it, to stop the decay in the world around you. 
Blind optimism is detached from reality, salt thrown in the air haphazardly. Blind cynicism is detached from the kingdom. It's just salt never deployed because what's the point? I would say it this way. The world may be going to hell in a handbasket. We're not going with it. We got to live by that sort of ethos where we go, the world may be going to hell in a handbasket. I'm not going with it. In fact, as for me and my family, we're not going with it. As for me and my friends, we're not going with it. And I got to detect everybody I have influence on and go, we're not going with it. And when I sense that we're going down that spiral of cynicism, I have to arrest that and go, hey, hey, not too deep. And if I sense that people are going too far into optimism, just trying to get there, wait till the sweet by and by, just don't look at what's around us. That's not it either. We got to engage. We have to be the people who see the world honestly and engage right where we are. We've said that the Beatitudes are marks of the believer. It's the birthmark of a believer. So what is this one? You will be salt. The mark of a believer is that your hope in the decay that you bring the joy, the seasoning of, of, of goodness and grace and mercy to the world around you. That's the mark of a believer. I'm not saying you have to be happy about relationship trials or financial woes, about your body breaking down or your country falling apart or war headlines or personal sadness. You don't do a dance when you read the headlines and everything's awful. You don't go, it's going to be okay. But in your weariness, you point to a greater hope. In your sadness, you point to a greater joy. And, and in all things, we go, well, where do I go when it becomes too much? If I really do embrace the dark side of the world and the, the present reality, if I have to embrace that so I can lead people out of it, so I can present the salt that is required, how do I, how do I live through that? Because that seems like it would be wearying. That seems like it would be exhausting. It's easier to just shut my ears and look the other way. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Are you tired? and worn out, and burned out on religion, Jesus says, come to me. Get away with me and recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me, work with me, watch how I do it. That's key, watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Jesus says, I'm, I'm the source. So you cannot live the cynical optimist life. You cannot see the fullness of darkness and point to the fullness of light unless you're doing it in him as source. We weren't designed to carry the full weight of what the world is going through. We weren't designed to save people either. That's his job, not yours. But in him, with him as source, all of a sudden we have what we need to lead people through this world. He says, watch how I do it. Jesus goes and he finds a leper. Jesus goes and finds someone with an injury. Jesus finds someone with a demon and he doesn't dismiss it. It's not real. It's not Peter Pan. He's not wishing on a star. He acknowledges the fullness of the brokenness and that there's healing available. And so how do we go through life? We watch how he does life and then we become ambassadors of his. Maybe you're in a dry season right now and you go, listen, this is all well and good, but this is like for people who aren't in my season. We say every week, people are in a battle. You are in a battle. I don't know what your battle is right now. I don't know if it's spiritual, financial. I don't know if it's public or private, big or small. You're in one. So we would acknowledge it and go, what do you do if, you're, if yours is heavy, if you're in a valley, if you go, I don't know how this ends. You're walking through a deep valley. Jesus says, I can be your overflow. John 7. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me to drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. We just read a few weeks ago, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
And there's two types of water in the Old Testament. There's, there's water, dead water, cistern water, stale water, still water, not getting refreshed. And there's living water that comes from a stream. And if you stand in a stream that's fed from the mountain peaks and the glacial snows, and you stand in that stream, that water never runs out. It just keeps renewing. And so if we want to live out of our own strength, we will be like cistern water that eventually goes rancid or something falls in it and dies or it goes, you know, the the cistern leaks and it goes empty or, or it evaporates. Eventually our tank goes empty. And Jesus goes, if you want to live the life you're called to, you have to live it out of me, out of living water. Only then do you have the power. Only then do you have the endurance. Only then do you have the strength to live the life I'm going to call you to. But that requires we stay in the stream. We have to stay in Jesus. We have to be in him. And when we separate ourselves from him and we attempt to do it on our own, when we separate ourselves from him and we want to just be do-gooders, if we separate from him and we just want to, it won't work. And then we find ourselves cynical again. We can't manufacture the joy that he's asking us to give away. We don't white-knuckle our way through optimism. We overflow from his never-ending stream. The people you know, you know these people. Some of you could think of them right now. You know somebody who you're like, how are they always like that? Ugh, it's so exhausting. How are they always like that? You know, and we, we almost like resent people who are just beautifully, wonderfully Christ-like and optimistic about the world and they're always willing to get in your mess with you and then I can always show you a better way and you're like, ugh. We always resent them. Ugh. They're in Jesus. That's the only place that comes from. Jesus says, you are the salt. You're the salt. So he's the source, but you're the salt. While you're on the path to heaven, let's bring a little heaven down. While you're walking through the valley, maybe point to the horizon. Let's introduce the decaying world to the hope of eternity. Let's bring the flavors of joy and peace and goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control. Let's bring all that to this world. Not hold it for ourselves, not wait until we get there, not just try to survive. Let's bring that here. If the wedding between Jesus and, and the church, his bride, you are the bride of Christ. If the wedding between Jesus and the church is happening and heaven is the reception feast, Jesus is in essence saying we don't need to wait to celebrate at the reception. Like the party can start now. You can start living now. You can start celebrating now. You can have the overflow of joy now. Why else would rational people spend thousands of dollars on gifts for local foster children? Which is what you've done over the last week and this next week. You're going, we're going to have 70 plus packages valued at 50 to $150. I don't know how much they are. And you start doing the math and you go, there is a lot of money that is going to be spent on foster kids that you may never know or never meet. Why would rational people do that? That's a poor economic decision. You do it because you're the salt. Because you're bringing joy. Because you're bringing hope. Because in a world where... Look, I was raised in a two-parent household for a good while. It broke down because everything breaks. But I wasn't a foster kid. I don't know that challenge. But you think if you're growing up in that system, you don't think that the world might be broken? You don't think you might be a little more cynical than the average person? 
When we show up with thousands of dollars of gifts and say, you're not forgotten, what is that? That's us saying, yes, the world is broken, and yes, you drew a bad lot, and yes, your life is hard. But we're not going to let you sit there. We're going to join you in the hard spot. We're going to point to the better times. We're going to show up so that you know that there's something better because you're salt. Why else would rational people put on a dinner for hundreds of international people that will just move away in a couple years? You spend a valuable day. You spend your money on turkeys and mashed potatoes. You go and you serve people who offer you nothing who are just going to leave. Why would you do that rationally? That's a poor economic decision. You do it because you're the salt. You do it because there's value in showing people that are far from home what it means to have family no matter where you are. You do it because you see the hope that can light someone's eyes when they feel something familiar again, when they realize that they're not alone, when they've flown 10,000 miles to come and study here and they go, I don't know anybody, I don't speak this language naturally, this whole culture is off, and you go, that's okay, we'll meet you right where you are. And you didn't think some, some cream corn or mashed potatoes could do it, but it does it. That they go, I think I feel loved. I feel seen, I feel heard, I feel loved. And the beginning of you giving the gospel to somebody is letting them know what it feels like to actually feel loved. That's grace. Grace is undeserved love, right? So you showing up with a turkey is actually a little bit of grace because you're the salt. You arrest decay. You season the world with joy. I did say there's a warning in 25 words of warning after the seven words of you're the salt. There's this warning about the salt losing its saltiness. What's that about? Sodium chloride, scientists can check me on this later. You can email me at robert at bgcovenant.org. <laughs> He's not in here, so he won't know about that. <laughs> Sodium chloride is super stable. It's a super stable chemical. Salt technically can't lose its saltiness. It doesn't become something else. It's super stable. So what's Jesus saying? How does it lose its saltiness? What Jesus is saying is salt loses its, its purpose and its effectiveness. How does that happen? I'd like to introduce you to Kingsbury, Texas. Kingsbury, Texas on the screen here. Isn't that lovely? Doesn't that look pleasant? Uh, my grandparents owned a, a ranch. They called it a Christmas tree farm, which I think was a tax dodging thing because there were like <laughs> three pine trees on it and they were not looking like Christmas trees. Um, this is like deep South Texas. It's a hundred million degrees. The only things they were farming were like rattlesnakes and it was awful. Um, there was a single wide mobile home on the farm, farm, and, uh, we would go once or twice a summer. We'd spend the weekend with my grandparents and, uh, it was just the worst. So, um, <laughs> like that's, that looks incredible compared to what we experienced. I just want to tell you. So one, one time, I mean, there were so many stories of awful things. Like you, you had these giant uh, boots. They had like boots up to your knees. They're made out of rubber, like to help you avoid the snakes. You have to just have clothing, anti-snake clothing. It's that bad. But the problem is when you'd go to get the boots, my grandmother would always say, don't forget to shake them out because snakes would live in the boots while you were gone. And so you'd have to turn the boots over and snakes would fall out. And then you put the boots on to warn away the snakes. Nightmare fuel, guys, nightmare fuel. Okay. So the place was just a nightmare. One morning we wake up, my grandmother's there, she's, uh, she's making scrambled eggs and we're sitting down at this little table and I, just like yesterday I recall this, love my grandmother's cooking, pretty excited, 
survived the night with no, you know, fatal snake bites. It was great. And this warm plate of beautiful, fluffy scrambled eggs drops in front of me. Love it. I grab the salt. I start shaking the salt on. And I'm like, Grandma, this is really clever. She says, what's that? You combine the salt and pepper. I only have to shake one thing. And she gives me this look like I did not do that. She gets a little closer. It's salt and fire ants. Kingsbury, Texas, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, what? She goes, yeah, those are fire ants. You're going to want to, that's no good. Give me that salt. And I was like, this is, what are we doing? What are we doing? Um, Cynical (laughs) optimism. The salt was ruined, right? Can't use that. Why? Did the salt lose its saltiness? Did the sodium chloride within that shaker change? No. The salt had become contaminated by an outside source. It was no longer good. It was no longer usable. It was contaminated. It was corrupted. It lost its saltiness as a result of mixing with impurities. The same is true all throughout. You can't use salt as a preservative if it gets mixed with sand. You're going to have spoiled meat. You need it to be pure salt. You can't use salt as a flavoring if it's mixed with fire ants. That's not going to work. Jesus says, once the salt loses its saltiness, once it's become contaminated or corrupted, then it cannot fulfill its purpose anymore. It's tossed and trampled underfoot. John Stott says it this way. If Christians become contaminated by the impurities of the world, however, they lose their ability to preserve or restrain anything. They may look like Christians, but their influence for good is gone. If we Christians are indistinguishable from the non-Christians, we are useless. We might as well be discarded like saltless salt. So corrupted salt is no longer useful. Contaminated, corrupted by the kingdom of the world, the follower of Jesus becomes useless in doing their job of being salt in the world. In a cynical world that's been taught to trust themselves and pursue their own feelings, that you can't trust the world because it's breaking down around you, if we get contaminated and corrupted by that, we can't point to what's good and true. That Jesus has a better way, that he offers you a better life. That Jesus' truth will conflict with your truth at times. That Jesus' truth might undermine your feelings at times. That only in Jesus can you recover your life. Only in him does the dry valley fill with living water. This is why we fight for the Beatitudes we've read. It's why we fight to be pure of heart. It's why we're honest about what it is we're into or what we're consuming. It's why we're honest about the media we consume. It's why we're honest to say, is this good for my soul or not? Is this contaminating and corrupting me or is this leading me closer to Jesus? It's why we confess to each other. It's why we fight for each other. It's why we encourage you to join a community group or a men's group or a women's group. Iron sharpens iron. People can hold us up. People can show us the way. In a cynical world, we can be unwaveringly hopeful because Jesus is the ultimate preservative. He saves like nothing else. Jesus is the ultimate seasoning. He adds more to life than any imitation can. We've all chased the other things. Like Solomon, we've chased all the other things on offer and they've left us unsatisfied. But Jesus won't. 
So as I invite you to embrace cynical optimism, because you are the salt, I would say that it's okay to say the world may be going to hell. And then to say, but as for me and my church, we're not. We're fighting back. We're going to remake this place. We're going to look at the world around us and say, let it be done in BG as it is in heaven. We're going to continue to be salt for those around us. We're going to continue to preserve the things that are decaying. We're going to add flavor and joy and hope and love to the places where that seems to be breaking down and absent again. We will be the salt of the earth. We will restore one heart at a time, one home at a time, one life at a time, one foster kid at a time, one international at a time, one church partner at a time. We exist to be preservative and seasoning, to be restorers of hope and bringers of light. And there's no higher calling. You are the salt. So don't lose it. Don't give it away. Don't allow contamination. Run away from corruption. You're the salt of the earth and the earth is desperate for you. Let's pray. Lord, we need uh, your strength. We need your strength and endurance. But the world uh, is, is at times difficult. The upstream life can be exhausting. And yet, Father, you've called us to something profound and you've called us to something beautiful. That in a world where everything is broken, God, you can heal. We believe that. We're evidence of that. Father, may you put on each of our lips our own uh, testimony of life rescued, of heart restored. God, did you allow us to see the world around us honestly? To honestly see the brokenness? And then, Lord, would you give us every ounce of hopefulness that comes from you and the living water in Jesus? God, give us an undeniable, unquenchable optimism about where this place is going, because while so much of us wants to be cynical, Lord, you've told us that every tear will get wiped away, that every injury will be healed, that every heart will be restored, that, Lord, we are going to be made new. So, Father, may we live out of that newness today. Share that with those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.